Well, good morning. I was uh, turning on my uh, microphone. I forgot. Well, it's good to worship with you all on Sunday morning, and uh, I'm excited to bring the Word of God to you and to exposit the Word of God with you to understand what the Word of God is saying. And we've been in a series in Matthew. So we're in Matthew chapter 5, and if you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and let us read verses 43 to 48 together. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors and what do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Then bow with me in the word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this morning that we can speak on the issue and the topic of love. We know this is a tough issue for us to investigate, tough issue to understand, and even a tougher issue to live by. But yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, may you teach us and guide us today on what it means to love as you have loved. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Loving others isn't so easy at all. In fact, we love the person that we prefer the most. You know, I love my children, I love my family, I love my wife, and yet there's one person I love even more than they. You might be surprised. I spend more time taking care of this person more than I've taken care of my family. And that person is myself. It is. You ask how? Well, I brushed my teeth this morning. I've done that more than for myself than any other person in the world. I dressed myself this morning. I've done that for myself than any other person in the world, too. I clean myself. I wash my hands. I shower. I've done that for myself more times than I've done for any other person. If you sit here today and this describes you, and certainly you can rest assured that the person you love the most is indeed yourself, given by the fact that you spend more time taking care of yourself than you have done any other person. We find it easy to love ourselves, and it is. And in fact, there's really nothing wrong with loving yourself and taking care of yourself. You should take care of yourself. However, the problem exists is when we begin to take care of only ourselves and no one else. You say, you know what? I love other people. I can take care of other people. I've taken care of other people. But before you continue, I would say that the person... Chances are the person you take care of the most and chances are the people that you love the most and your friends with the most are the people who are just like you. They're the people who have similar experiences as you. They're people who think like you. They're the people who can appreciate you as much as you would appreciate yourself. In a broad social construct, we see this in our society, we see this in our country. We see the Asians hang out with the Asians. We see the whites hang out with the whites. We see the blacks hang out with the blacks. In the smaller social settings, in a room of different 
kinds of people we see the young hang out with the young people. We see the older people hang out with the older people. We see those who are professional white collar hang out with the white collars. Those who are blue collars hang out with the blue collars. We see the people who are married hang out with the people who are married. We see the unmarried, the singles, hang out with those who are single. We hang out with people who are just like us. We hang out with people we think that will appreciate us as much as we appreciate ourselves. And yet for anyone who sits outside the circle of our immediate circle of preference, we find it difficult to love. find it difficult to love across economic lines. The poor or the rich has a difficult time loving the poor. The poor has a difficult time loving the rich. Across the age gaps, find it difficult for the young to understand the old and for the old to understand the young. Across racial lines, Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the most segregated hour, the most segregated hour in America is when? Sunday morning, 11 a.m. That's when people go to church. That's when the whites go to church with whites, the Asians go to church with Asians, the blacks go to church with the blacks. And that is still true today. Find it difficult to love people who are different from us. We do. We love the people who are the same as us and Besides that, there also exist people who are hurting us, who work against us, who speak against us, who call themselves our enemies, and even in our hearts, we find it difficult to love them. It's difficult to love our enemies. We might even hate our enemies instead of loving them. Yet God calls us to love because His character is love, and His perfect standard is love, and any failure to love others as much as we would love ourselves as much as God loves us. It's failing God's perfect standard, perfect requirement. And if that is God's perfect standard, and the reality exists in is that we sin against God all the time in failing to love God or love others as much as God calls us to love. We sin. We sin against God. We fail God's perfect requirement. We fail against God and failing to love. So in our lives, we're constantly racking up sins against God. We sin against God and fell into love. And we deserve God's perfect judgment for sinning against Him. And God's perfect judgment is hell, eternal hell. And that is the state of our soul for failing to love. That is the state of our society for failing to love. That is the state of our country for failing to love. And that is the state of our world for failing to love. And yet God loves us. He Himself is the standard of love. He Himself is the perfect representation of love. He came to us. Jesus Christ, who is love, came to us and came to save us. He came to do what we cannot do. Jesus loved us perfectly. He loved us while we were the unlovable. What he did is that he lived a perfect life in which we cannot live. He fulfilled God's perfect law, which we cannot fulfill. He lived out perfectly what God calls him to live, calls every humanity to, every human person to live, including to love perfectly. He did so. Only in the end to die on the cross for your sin and my sins. And die on the cross, he was paying for the penalty of your sin and my sin. And while he was dying on the cross, he was giving his perfect righteousness to us so that we may be as righteous as he is. In making us perfectly pure and perfectly righteous, Jesus brought us back to God, restored us to the relationship with God. And as Jesus rose from the dead because he was God, death cannot hold him down. He promises us 
those who believe unto him, we shall also have eternal life. We will be raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead. We will live with him in his forever kingdom. And it all began with the fact that he loved us. And given the fact today that God loves us and God loves each one of us, we are called to love others as he loved. He presents to us this message here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48, which is the standard of God, that we're called to love as he's loved. We're called to love others as we love ourselves. However, we fail doing this all the time. And that's why we need Jesus, we need Christ, to die for our sins, to make us righteous as he is righteous. We're going to see this message today here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48. But if you're not a believer today, if you're coming in here and you haven't trusted in Christ, I will ascertain that the way you live your life is to love those who you prefer and you, in fact, even also hate your enemies because that will be the most natural way for you to live. However, if you trust in Christ today, you're going to find your heart begin to change. You're going to live your life in such a way that you are going to begin to love those who you, even, those who you don't prefer. You're going to love those who are even your enemies. God loves us. His Holy Spirit lives within us changes our hearts, makes us new. And with Him in our hearts, we're going to begin to love others as we would love ourselves. So in this passage, again, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48, we're going to see the perfect standard of love. And God's perfect standard of love is this. We're going to see this as our first point. His perfect standard of love is that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's read from verse 43 to verse 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, we're called to love our neighbors, but we ask the question, who is our neighbor? Who really is our neighbor? We're going to find out what the answer is from this passage as we turn to other passages in the Bible. Our neighbor is not just someone who we prefer. It's not just our friends, our family, someone we like. But our neighbors are, in fact, anybody, anyone we run into that has a need. We're going to see this principle. We're called to love everyone and anyone who has a need, as we would love ourselves. So to pull back a little bit to the context of the passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43 to 48, we're going to see that Jesus is teaching us that anyone who wants to be saved can only be saved through him. No one can fulfill the perfect righteous requirement of God according to the law. However, Jesus fulfilled God's law for us. That is why he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he came to fulfill God's perfect law. He came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He's going to fulfill the law, and then he's going to give us his perfect righteousness as a gift to us so that we may be restored to God. And seeing that people are having a hard time understanding, what does it mean that they have to somehow have Jesus fulfill the law for them? Jesus began to show them why they have a problem. You see, the Pharisees and the scribes never thought they had a problem to begin with. They had thought that they can fulfill God's perfect law by their own works. They thought that if they just do it, God's going to find them pleasing. But they can't do God's perfect law. They'll never ever fulfill God's perfect law. So instead of fulfilling God's law, they begin to invent a bunch of do's and don'ts in their own rabbinic traditions, whatever it is, to kind of satisfy their own self-righteousness. They create a substandard of God's law, a different requirement. 
So Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 to 48, is setting the record straight. He's saying that your guys are teaching this, but the law of God actually teaches this. He's saying to them that they have never fulfilled God's law. In fact, they sin plenty in God's sight. That is why they need a Savior. So to induce their minds that they have a problem, to show them that there is indeed a problem with their lives, that they're sinners before God, and that Jesus indeed is the solution to their problem, he begins in verse 21, begins to exposit to them what the Word of God actually says, what the law of God actually entails. The Pharisees thought this. They thought, in verse 21, that as long as they did not physically murder someone, they're not murderers. Jesus came back and said, if you ever got angry at another person, your murder in the heart. The Pharisees taught in verse 27, saying that as long as you do not commit physical adultery with another person, you do not commit adultery. Jesus says, according to God's law, if you ever lusted with your eyes, thought of a lustful thought, you're adulterer in the heart. The Pharisees taught in verse 31 that you can divorce and remarry for any reason at all, at all as long as you give a certificate of divorce. Jesus says that if you divorce and remarry outside of God's allowed reasons, your divorce is sinful and your marriage adulterous. The Pharisees taught in verse 33 that you, you can lie. You can lie as long as you did not swear in the name of God. As long as you did not swear in the name of God, if you lie, it's not a sin. Jesus taught that it doesn't matter what you swore, whether you swore by heaven or earth or by God, Anything that you say that is not from the perfect integrity of your heart is sin in God's eyes. And then last week we saw in verse 38, the Pharisees taught that you can retaliate for any reason at all to get even. Jesus says that any retaliation out of personal vendetta is sin in God's eyes. As Jesus is speaking, he's convicting people, he's convicting the Jews, but he's also convicting us. You see, we all failed in all these ways, plenty of time in our lives. We all sin against God. And that is why we need Jesus Christ to be our righteousness, to fulfill God's righteousness for us, to die on the cross for our sins, so that we may be saved. Now in verse 43, Jesus continues. He's continuing to expound the word of God, why he is their Savior, why people need him to be their Savior, why people are sinning against him. And he's coming to a portion in the Sermon on the Mount speaking on love. On love. So the Pharisees taught a distorted version of God's requirement of love, and they taught this. They taught that you are to love your neighbors and hate your enemies. We see this in verse 43. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, namely that's what the Pharisees were saying. They taught you to love your neighbors and to hate your enemies. On the outside, it appeared that the Pharisees were teaching something from the Bible. It looks like they were. Because you look at the first part and it says to love your neighbor and certainly you can find portions of that in the Bible. Specifically, you can find it in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. When God commands to love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what he said in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. To love your neighbor as yourself. God is commanding the Israelites to love their neighbor as themselves. So... To give you an illustration, God actually does illustrate this in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 1 through 2. It says this, if you happen, this is an illustration, so imagine with me. If you happen to see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray, you should take them back to your brother. 
If he does not live near you, or if you do not know who this person is, that is, you find someone's sheep and you don't know who this person belongs to, or this sheep belongs to, you shall bring it home. Bring the sheep home to your house. You should take care of the sheep. He should stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you should restore it to him. So what the law says is that if you find something on the road that doesn't belong to you, there is no finder's keepers according to God's law. You don't get to keep it. You get to take care of it. You have to feed it. You have to put your resources into it until someone comes and look for it. And then you have to give it back to him. That's love. Love others as you would love yourself. That's what the law says. The Jews, however, found this to be a real hard thing to do. I mean, loving others as you love yourself, that's, that's difficult. So they began to change God's law. They took away this portion of as yourself. As you can see in this teaching, love your neighbors. But they removed the portion as yourself because by doing that, they could take away the standard. If the standard is that's yourself, then that's a real hard standard. By removing that standard, they can love others as how much they want to love. However much you want to give, how much you want to love, that's fine. But if there's a standard there, that's difficult. But they remove the standard as yourself, saying, you know what, just love however you want to love. And second, what they did is they, re- they redefined the word neighbor. What is a neighbor? And we're going to find out who a neighbor is here in this passage. They redefined it. They're arguing back and forth, what is a neighbor? They would like for the neighbor to be someone they liked, someone who is their family member, someone in their own people group, their own religious elite, a Jew, or simply a Pharisee and a scribe among themselves. So you see this redefinition of the word neighbor in Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 47, in a famous parable called the parable of the Samaritans, where a Jewish lawyer came to Jesus and asked, you know, I know I have to love my neighbor, but who really is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? So Jesus gave him a parable, saying that there's a Jewish man walking down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this happened to him. There on the street, he was robbed. He was robbed, he was beaten, he was left on the street to die. While on the street, he saw a priest walk by. The priest saw him. You expect the priest to help because he's a religious elite. He doesn't. He saw him, he walks by saying, you know, I don't want to touch this. He saw Levi walks by. Levi is a famous tribe that can be a priest. However, a Levi walks by too. Did nothing. Next came the Samaritan. Samaritan walked by. Now you expect them to keep walking because the Jews hated Samaritans. They did. They were the half-breeds. They were the despised people. They would never ever consider the Samaritans a neighbor that they would love. Yet the Samaritan came by, saw the injured man, picks him up, brings him to an inn, binds up his wounds, pays for his stay, and pays an innkeeper to keep him there, to continue to take care of him. So Jesus asked this Jewish lawyer, who do you think is a neighbor of this Jewish man? This lawyer answered, and he was so hesitant to answer, he did not even want to say the word Samaritan. He said, I suppose the one who helped him. I suppose the one who helped him. He was so prejudiced against Samaritans, he did not even want to say the word Samaritan by name. But rather, Jesus here is teaching them a lesson. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone you walk by who has a need. Anyone who is in your path, life, who has a need. Even the people you don't prefer, even the people you might have prejudice against, that person is your neighbor. And you're called to love that person 
as you would love yourself. Now you might say, you know what? That's hard. That's hard to do. I meet a lot of people and certainly that's hard to do. In fact, I don't do that. I would sin against God all the time and you will be right. You will be sinning against God all the time. This kind of love is God's love to us. It's a, it's a love of choice. It's a difficult love. To love everyone as you love yourself. You know, in the Bible, there are four different kinds of love. At least in the biblical times, four different words used for love. The word storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Storge describes the type of love that's between a parent and a child. It's easy to love your child. It's easy for the child to love a parent. It's very familiar. Phileo describes a brotherly kind of love, a love that's between friends, someone who's like you, someone who you like, someone who prefers you. It's a phileo love. Eros describes a love that's romantic, a love between a husband and a wife. It's easy to love in these ways. You know, for all these words of love, you can see that there's exchange. You love the person, the person returns in love. However, there is a love that there is no exchange. It's called agape. It's the kind of love that is generated from a choice, a choose to love. It describes God's love to us while God never saw anything return in loving to us. It's God's choice. While we're unlovable, He loved us. We didn't... Our love for the Lord is not why He would love us. He loved us because He loved us first. He chose to love us. And when you love God, or when we love others the way that God loves, today you're choosing to Love in agape love. You do love in such a way that you're sacrificing for another person where there are no benefits, no exchanges, no strings attached. You're loving this other person even if this person does not love you. That's called agape love. And some of us do it. We do it from time to time. You know, I remember from one time, there's a pastor I served with, and he invited this woman to his home who was mentally ill to a fellowship with his family and with other church members. She came. She came, but she was sick in the, in, in the mental state. And then during the middle of the fellowship time, she went to the bathroom. And he jokes about it all the time because it's a, it became a funny thing, but it wasn't so funny when she was doing it. When she came out, she smeared poop all over the bathroom floor in his house. You say, you know, why did he invite this woman over? He knew. He knew, he knew he was, she was sick and she, she probably would do this because of love. Because of love. He was loved by God and he unconditionally loved everyone and anyone that was in his path. He counted every person as an opportunity to share the love of Christ with. He said, you know what? I, I, I don't know if I can do that. I can do that once or twice in my life, but all the time? And you're right. Because only God does this for us all the time. See, God loves us with agape love in the sense that while we didn't know him, while we were unlovable, while we were sinners before God, he loved us. While our sin stunk before him, he chose to receive us. Down the cross for our sins and to give us his perfect righteousness. He chose to take us literally, in a sense, into his home, clean us, offer us his clean clothes to wear, let us live in his house with his clean bed sheets. He even continues to love us as we are sinning against Him. Continue to forgive us, continue to cleanse us while we sin against Him every day. Now all this amazing love that which God has for us, we are called to love others in return. To love in the same way, to love others 
as we would love ourselves. We imitate God in such a love. But we know that we fail in doing this all the time. We fail in loving others. However, that's where the beauty of the gospel lies. Jesus covers us. He saves us. He forgives us. So we continue. We continue to live our lives in love. But then we ask the question, does Jesus mean everyone? Everyone? Does it have to be everyone? I mean, literally there are people in our lives that are seeking to hurt us, seeking to persecute us, seeking to speak against us. There are enemies. You say you don't have any enemies? You do. If you go to the Middle East today and go find the closest ISIS group and tell them that you're a Christian, they'll tell you that you're their enemy. They'll kill you right away. You have enemies in this world. You do. However, Jesus calls us to what? Love. Love our enemies in the same way. Love them as we would love ourselves. That's incredible. So first we see that Jesus is revealing to us what God's perfect standard is. His perfect standard is that we will love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And second, we're going to see that neighbor includes everyone, includes our enemies, those who will persecute us, those who will hurt us, those who will speak against us. We're called to love them as we love ourselves. So let's read again this passage in verse 43 to verse 48. It says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and unjust. For you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So now Jesus communicates the need to love your neighbor, telling all that are called to love everyone, not just those who they prefer, but to love everyone as they would love themselves. He now expounds more who this everyone includes. And we talked about this just now. I briefly mentioned that those everyone includes your enemies, those who are working against you, those who are speaking against you, those who are hurting you. You're called to love them as you would love yourself. And certainly in the days of Jesus, there's... Are those, those, there are those that existed for the Jewish people. The Jews faced many enemies in their times. They did. One of the particular enemies they faced was the Romans, the Roman Empire, a group of Gentiles that do not know God, do not serve God, but ruled over the Jewish people. The Romans ruled over the Jewish people in such a way that they exacted a brutal taxation system against the Jewish people. They made Jewish people poor, poor subjects of their own nation, while the Jews believe that they shall be God's people here in their own land. So last week we saw this, is that the Romans can do such a thing which they can make a Jewish person walk a mile carrying their stuff for them. They can do this. They can force a Jew to do this. So the Jews consider the Romans their enemies. Another group that the Jews hated was the tax collectors. We're going to see them later on here also in this passage. The tax collectors collected taxes from the Jews to give to the Romans. Now, the Jews thought the tax collectors as sellouts because they're Jews. All tax collectors were Jews. They worked with the Romans to collect taxes. The Roman Empire gave them power to collect taxes from the Jews. And oftentimes when the tax collectors were collecting taxes, taxes they also are collecting this extra money to pad their own pockets. 
They fed themselves. So the Jews considered the tax collectors to be traitors and to be their enemies. And given that the Jews face so many enemies in their own lives and those who are working against them, it's easy for them to think that they should hate their enemies, should hate them, despise them. They thought that if God in the Old Testament teaches you that you should love your neighbor as he did in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and the opposite logic should sit true. If you love your neighbor, you should hate your enemies, right? That would make sense. So they hated the Romans, they hated the Gentiles, they hated the tax collectors, they hated whoever they considered to be their enemies who were working against them. But Jesus begins his words in verse 44 saying, But I say to you, love your enemies, love them, and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus is speaking on the authority of God. He says, I say to you, even though the Pharisees redefine what God's law is, saying that you should or you can't hate your enemy, the reality is that God's law never commanded for you to hate your enemy. That's not what the Old Testament says. Jesus sets the record straight. Old Testament calls you to love your enemies. You can, say, you can see this in Exodus, chapter 23, verse 4 through 5. Another issue with the ox and donkey, I'll read it to you. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you should bring it back to him, your enemies. If you see a donkey of the one who hates you lying down on his burden, you should refrain from leaving him with it. You should rescue it with him. Rescue the animal with your enemy. Love your enemy. God's commanding you that you will treat your enemy as the way which you would treat yourself. So instead of hating your enemies, Jesus is commanding us to love. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, he says this. He says, there will be those who persecute you. There will be those who utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. That's true. Those are going to exist. That's what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, in the Beatitudes. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus also said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you as well. You will have enemies as a Christian. Especially from those who are unbelievers, who are seeking to stop you from sharing the gospel, who are having issues with your faith. As the enemy hurts you, and persecute you? Jesus said in verse 44, our response is to do what? To love them. To pray for them. He gives us a reason why we should pray for them. He said this, it's because your heavenly Father loves his enemies. Our God loves his enemies. Who are the enemy, enemies of God? Romans chapter 5 verse 10 made this clear. We are the enemies of God. He says this, for while we are enemies, we are reconciled to God by the death of His Son. For anyone who is not a believer, even us, before we came to know Jesus, we stood as enemies of God. And at that time, while we are enemies, God has every right to judge us. God has every right to condemn us. God has every right to take His vengeance upon us. But He does not. He chose to love us, chose to forbear us, give us a chance to come to salvation. And that's why in Matthew chapter 5, or chapter 8, verse 45, he says this, and we read this, he makes the sun rise and the rain fall on the just and unjust, on the good and the evil. God in this world is continuing doing good to his enemy, continuing to love his enemy, and we would do the same as well. We're called to do the same as well. We as God's people should reflect our lives in such a way we would love our enemies. So in verse 46 and 47, Jesus continued to speak on the authoritative command of what it means to love our enemy and says, you know what, if you just love the people 
who you prefer, you love your friends, you love your family, then you're just like the rest of the world. Even the Gentiles love their own. Even the tax collectors love themselves, they greet their own. Even ISIS love themselves, right? Even ISIS would greet their own. And they're the most evil people in this world. If you just love your own family, love the people who love you, you're just like them. But in reality, God's law requires much more than that. It requires you love. Love those who are hurting you. Loving those who are your enemies. Loving those who are seeking to persecute you. So in the last verse of chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus summarized all the law, what it was meant to do and what he came to do. He said this. He said, you must be perfect as a heavenly father is perfect. See, the law was designed to tell you how perfect God is. God is perfect. God's law reflects his character. Now, perfection means this. Perfection means perfect. It's not just that you try real hard. It's not that you're better than most. Perfection is perfect. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in order for you to be in heaven. You must be completely sinless to be in God's presence. No man can ever achieve God's perfect standard except who? Jesus, except Jesus did. So circle back. Jesus came to fulfill God's perfect law for you and for me so that he may give to us his perfect righteousness so that we may be received into his kingdom. We were enemies of God. We were sinful, but now we're restored unto the Father through the sacrifice and the work of Jesus on the cross. We get to live a life now. Having been restored to God, we now can live a life loving others as Jesus loved and participate in the work of restoring others to God, restoring other enemies of God to God through loving them and sharing the gospel with them. Because we may not understand this, we may not fully understand the reality, but God has enemies, and God's enemies are also our spiritual enemies. They are. We have spiritual enemies. Our spiritual enemies are those who don't believe in Jesus. I remember one time we were sitting out there on the porches on a Friday, and uh, a, a man, another congregant, came with, and I were sitting out there and just praying for people, have our prayer on the porch. We do this regularly. If you ever guys want to come out, it's, it's a fun time for us to, to be challenged and to love, you know the unlovable and sometimes real hostile people. But in this particular instance, a woman, a, a man actually came up and said, if we will pray for him. So yeah, we'll pray for you. We'll pray for you in the name of Jesus because Jesus is our God and if we pray in the name of Christ, God's going to answer our prayers according to his will. His posture immediately changed. He said, no. Why don't you pray for me but not in the name of Jesus? He said, why not? We believe in Jesus. Jesus is our God. We will pray in the name of Jesus. And we started debating with them. <laughs> Going from John and other passages in the Bible, saying, you know what, Jesus is God. He started getting real hostile. Well, come to us first, being real peaceful. I don't know what he thought I was praying for, but maybe he's just looking for some kind of spiritual, new age kind of thing, meditation, whatever, but become real hostile, real aggressive at us. And then he walked away to the other side of Selma Avenue. And he turned around, started screaming at us, and drew a curse with his hand at us and threw it at us. Cuss this out. Okay. That's what happened. Now, we were only standing up for Jesus. We weren't out there looking for enemies. And neither are you. You're living your life. You're not creating enemies. You're just standing up for Jesus. You're just living for Christ. But there will be those who stand diametrically opposed to God. And they will put, they'll put themselves as your enemies. They will. 
The reality stands, which Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 28, applies to all Jews, but all unbelievers, all unbelieving Jews, that is, that they're enemies of the gospel. The enemies of the gospel are all who don't believe in Jesus. However, our hope lies here. The love of God reconciles enemies. God reconciles enemies. God first reconciled us to himself. We were enemies of God. We saw this again here in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus died on the cross to reconcile us, to forgive us, to give his perfect righteousness to us. God gives salvation to all who believe, and certainly we're reconciled to him because he loved us. But not only us. God's love also reconciles us to others. We have enemies in this world. But as they believe in Jesus, we're brought into the family of God. We're reconciled, each one of us here in our church, to love. We're called to love one another because we're a part of the family of God. So knowing here, knowing that God's love reconciles us and we're reconciled to God through his love and we're reconciled to one another through God's love, we then proclaim this gospel of love as we love as God loves. We choose to love because as we love and as we share the gospel, we're expanding God's kingdom, telling other people about Jesus, and other people are drawn to know him. That means that we live in such a way that we talk to people, we genuinely listen to other people's stories, unbelievers and believers alike, befriend whoever it is that the Lord brings us to our path. We love others as we love ourselves. That is a command we must love. However, we must remember that loving someone is not doing everything that they want you to do. You understand? Loving someone is not necessarily doing everything they ask you to do. But rather, loving someone, truly loving someone in Christ, is to love them in such a way that they will be brought closer to God. Now, they might resist your love, if that is your definition of love, but that is a true definition of love, that you will love everyone as you would, as they will be brought closer to God. And I think, you're not loving them, but that's love. But that is love. That's how God wants us to love. God doesn't want us to love according to every selfish whim, every selfish desire of every human being. He wants us to love the way that He loved. And this, this defines our relationship with everyone, including our relationship here in the body of Christ. I will ask that you will love me in such a way that you don't cater to my selfish wants, but love me in such a way that you will draw me closer to Christ. And I will ask that you will ask others here to do the same for you. That you will love, you will be loved in such a way that, other, that you will be brought closer to Christ. Sometimes loving another person is to say the harsh truth. It is. Say the difficult thing because that is the most loving thing. That's the thing that you must say in order to bring someone closer to God. And certainly that is what Jesus is doing here to the Pharisees and to the scribes. We must love one another in such a way that we're brought closer together, but we're brought closer together because we're brought closer to God. Given that we're called to love, it's often a question, what does it mean to love? What is the best action to love another human being? Loving another person is not necessarily putting more temptation in front of another person. You must understand, loving is loving as the way God would love. Giving a drug addict a wad of cash, for example, is not loving just not loving. That would hurt him. 
So we run into endless scenarios. What does it mean to love? I want to love this person, but how can I love this person? But for this reason, I believe that we're given the body of Christ. The body of Christ can help each other find out more how we can love. So if you don't know how to love another person, I would recommend you that you talk to another person, talk to another mature brother or sister in the Lord. Ask him how I can love this person. I want to love, but what's the best practical way to love? Ask for counsel. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. But here in the body of Christ, we put our minds together. We can love others in a way I believe that God wants us to love. And since everything here is generated from love, generated from care and love for one another, the first feeling I believe that anyone should feel when they walk through these two doors here to visit our church is love. Everyone should feel loved here in our church. Whether you're a new visitor, whether you're an old visitor, whether you're a regular attender, or a member, when you walk through those two doors where you're part of our church, the primary feeling that you ought to feel is that you're loved. You should. And as a result of feeling loved, especially for the unbelievers who felt love here today, I pray that you're drawn to experience the ultimate love, the love of Jesus. As you hear the message of God and hear the gospel, that if you submit to God's love, you shall also be saved. See, God calls us to love. God calls us to love. And he reveals to us what the center of love is. The center is high. We need to love others, our neighbors, as we love ourselves. And specifically, we're to love our enemies as we love ourselves. You see, enemies exist. They do. Enemies exist in our lives. I'm doing a Civil War reading these days. And I came across a battle. It's one of the bloodiest battles ever fought in time of civil war. It's called the Battle of Fredericksburg. In this battle, the Union Army, which commanded to charge up this hill, about 400 yards of open space, to attack a Confederate position behind a stone wall. So the Confederate position was there in the first place, and the Union soldiers must take this position. What the Confederate soldiers did is they hit behind the stone wall. They had six ranks of soldiers lined up behind the stone wall. That means that a soldier can fire and move back to the rank and reload while the next soldier steps up and fire again. As a result, at the end of this battle, the Union soldiers sustained severe casualties when they charged up the hill. When the day ended, about 8,000 Union soldiers were shot, injured, or dead behind that, or in front of that stone wall on that field of open space. As the Union soldiers lay on the ground, the temperature of the Fredericksburg, Virginia, began to fall, and the snow began to fall down to the field. Throughout the night, the Union soldiers cried out in pain, in the cold, saying, I'm cold, I'm in pain, I'm bleeding, I'm dying, moaning, no one to help. Both sides were sitting stalemate, no one can get out into the field being fear of being shot. At that point, one of the Confederate soldiers, Richard Kirkland, he stood up and asked his general, if you can go out there and help the wounded soldiers by giving them some water. The soldiers said, no, can't go out there. The Union soldiers are everywhere. They're everywhere. They're looking out the field with their rifle lined up. The moment you step out into the field, you'll be shot dead. Kirkland then said, maybe I can go out there with a the little white flag that will show them I'm, I'm not armed and certainly they won't shoot, shoot me. The general said, no, you can't do that either. I mean, we're winning this war if you go out the white flag that look like we're surrendering. Can't do that. At that point, Richard Kirkland said, well, what, 
I'll just have to take my chances then. The general, seeing the conviction of this man, allowed him to go, saying, you know what, mate? God protects you. Kirkland, then he gathered up all the canteens he can find, filled them up, and carried them out onto the field. At first, a Union sharpshooter saw him. They shot at him. Fortunately, they missed. The general on the Union side saw that Richard Kirkland was not armed, that what he was doing began to call, cease fire, cease fire, call all the cease fire. And there on the open field, both the Union side and the Confederate side saw this man, Richard Kirkland, throughout the night, carrying canteens of water to the wounded soldiers, straightening out their mangled bodies, putting blankets over them on that open field. He did this trips, trip after trip throughout the night until morning, helping as many as he can. When morning came, he again took position behind that stone wall. At that moment, after both sides saw what he did, both the Union side and the Confederate side broke out in loud cheers and applauses. Loving our enemies is risky. We're opening ourselves to be hurt by our enemies when we love them. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came while standing in the open line of fire, literally. He died on the cross. Or figuratively, he died on the cross for those of us who sought to kill him. Our sins is what resulted in the death of Christ. And yet, Jesus is willing to give up his life for us to save us. Those of us who are saved today will imitate the love of Jesus. So today, we're called to do this. We're called to love our neighbors. We're called to love our enemies. If we do so, we shall receive applauses. But you won't be applauses from any man. You'll be applauses from God. Ask the question, will you live your life for love so that you may receive applauses from God? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message of love, Lord. We know, God, that it is difficult to love. It's a very difficult thing. It's a challenging thing. It's a risky thing. But, Lord, we know, God, our lives are securing you, so we can love. We can love as you have loved. Lord, we love you, God. Pray that our lives here on earth may mean something. May we sacrifice in such a way that we draw others close to you. May we truly live our lives in such a way that as a result of our love, many, sir, many people are drawn to you and believe unto you. We pray, Father, that you make our lives useful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.